Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Physionic Podcast. My name is Nicholas Verhoeven. I'm a PhD student in molecular medicine. I have my master's in exercise physiology, and I've been uh, doing lab work for about five years now. I Today, I've got five different topics to discuss. Uh, I'll quickly run through the five so you get some sort of summary on what I'm going to be covering today. And you can skip to whatever section that you'd like to listen to, or you can listen to the whole thing, to which I'd be much obliged. So the first topic I'm going to be discussing is meat allergy. So an allergy to meat that is uh, caused by a particular bite of something. I'll leave it at that. So uh, not having an allergy to meat and then suddenly having an allergy to meat caused by this particular bite. The next one is I've named it selective asthma. So asthma that only occurs in particular situations or what is the cause of asthma, one of the causes of asthma. Uh, another one is a new mechanism to understand skin pain sensation ability. So uh, are essentially understanding the physiology of how we experience pain through skin sensation or pressure, really any touch uh, through our skin. Uh, then the fourth one is on uh, aging markers or slowing aging uh, using and ca categorizing, excuse me, categorizing uh, aging by aging types. So uh, researchers did a, a really interesting study looking at how people age and uh, how to slow aging. So really cool. And then I finally wanted to finish things off uh, just going through and discussing uh, a comment that was left under my high protein diet on uh, health uh, content, which seemed to, uh, a few people seemed interested in uh, what that comment said. So I wanted to address uh, that comment and uh, kind of put out my rebuttal to that point. Uh, although although I, I certainly appreciated the person speaking up and, and pointing something out that might be interesting to discuss. So, uh, as I said, all the timestamps will be located so you can check that out at your own leisure. Okay, so let's jump into the first topic, which is a meat allergy. Uh, you, I actually read about this maybe a year ago or two years ago, where individuals that were not suffering from a meat allergy suddenly had this really strong reaction. It could be, uh, you know, relatively mild all the way to an incredibly dangerous reaction to the consumption of meat like lamb, pork, beef, things of that nature. And uh, people will eat meat for, let's say, 38 years of their life, whatever, just some random number. And then suddenly after 38 years, their body just has this extreme immune reaction to it. And they've been trying to figure out what causes this. And they have some idea of what causes it. They had an idea of what the, the transmission method was, but they didn't really understand what was causing this sudden immune reaction. And so the transmission method is being people being bitten by what's called the lone star tick. So a tick is an insect. I am not an entomologist, so I can't uh, talk on in any depth on ticks, but I will tell you I do not like them. 
Uh, I don't like anything that sucks blood, uh, be that leeches or ticks uh, or anything else. Uh, but in this situation, it's the this specific tick called the Lone Star Tick. And if you're bitten by it, it doesn't necessarily 100% mean that suddenly after the fact you're going to be allergic to meat. Uh, it's something goes on, and that's what they were trying to figure out with this particular study. And what they found is that when the tick bites, uh, apparently there's a protein that's released, or a molecule, I should say, that's released into the bloodstream, and that leads to the immune system not recognizing it. Now, that's perfectly fine. That's understandable, and that's exactly how your immune system should be reacting. So it starts producing antibodies to that molecule that that's not of you. It's not part of your body. So then uh, it attacks that molecule. Makes complete sense. However, the problem is that there is a, and they didn't actually say what, the, what this was, but my speculation is that when we consume meat, there is a similar molecule, if not an identical molecule, uh, in meat that uh, is then recognized by our immune system. So then every time that we consume meat, that molecule crosses the intestinal barrier and ends up in the bloodstream. And then therefore, we get this strong immune reaction. So what exactly happens with the immune reaction? Well, we have, uh, and I've spoken on this before, but our immune system is broken up into two main branches. Uh, you've got the uh, innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. And this particular molecule really uh, kind of aggravates the adaptive immune system. So the one that typically rises up when the innate immune system, the immune system that's always around, kind of floating around, scavenging like scouts, looking out for, for particular issues. If they can't deal with that, those cells, which would be like neutrophils and macrophages and things of that nature, if they can't handle it, then they end up, uh, that molecule or whatever the pathogen is, whatever the the reactant is uh, will lead the adaptive immune system to start multiplying and start uh, essentially recruiting, in a manner of speaking, soldiers to fight off specifically that pathogen. Now, one of the key cells for that is B cells. Uh, so these B cells will begin releasing antibodies. And in this situation, so we've got a ser many, 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 many different types of antibodies, but some of the base characteristics of antibodies, uh, they're broken up between two different proteins, more or less, called a constant region of the antibody and a variable region of the antibody. So you have the head of the antibody that's called the variable region, and that can be switched out by hundreds of different uh, what's called recombination. So our cells uh, recombine different proteins to kind of put our antibodies into particular configurations, different uh, uh, presentations. Think of it like, like changing colors. Uh, you've got, you know, red, yellow, blue, green. You know, it's just going through different iterations of colors. So the colors are the antibodies and the variable region, the changes in the variable region are just like selecting different colors. So they are trying to, the cell essentially continues to recombine different heads of the antibodies until it finds the one that will, that will attach to 
the the problem molecule and that problem molecule in this situation would be that molecule that's released by by protein or originally by the tick so B cells start releasing what are called IgE, so immunoglobulin, so that's a, a, a common type of antibody, immunoglobulin E, so the immune, immunoglobulin, that's called a mouthful, IgE, will then be expelled and released into the bloodstream by all these B cells of the adaptive immune system. And this uh, mass production of antibodies, they start sticking to this uh, particular antigen, this molecule, this tick molecule, and that leads to the immune system then going rampant and going crazy trying to eliminate as much of it as it possibly can. So what these researchers have been able to do is not only figure out, and maybe this has been done in previous research, I'm not up to date on this particular research itself, but what these researchers have been able to do is uh, produce a mouse model of this exact condition. So what's really exciting about this is that people who suffer from this problem, I mean, sure, they can just cut out meat, uh, except for, I guess, I think chicken was okay, or like fish are okay. They don't have that molecule in them. So was, I think those were okay, but like cutting out beef and pork and things like that. So, uh, you know, you, you could avoid it by doing that, but then if you still wanted to consume meat um, and you didn't want to potentially die <laughs> from it, uh, then uh, hopefully these researchers will be able to figure out some sort of solution to this problem. By and they, The big step here is that by building a mouse model where they can study this in an in vivo system, that's what that's called, in vivo meaning uh, that it's within a, in, inside some sort of animal body. Uh, it's, it's got all the systems there that would normally be there. So you're not taking cells out of the body and then studying them just on a dish. You're actually measuring them within the body. So these mice then express this immune reaction, a similar immune reaction to this particular protein when it's injected into the animal. So that's kind of a, a step forward and it, it just gives us some sort of way to then springboard off of that and start creating uh, hopefully some therapies to, to help these individuals that are bitten and affected by this lone star tick uh, meat allergy. Okay, so that was the first topic. And of course, I'll have uh, the, the paper link so you can check it out uh, for yourself. I, you know, I'm, I, I didn't go into it in any sort of massive depth. I just wanted to give a, a summary of what exactly happened. So the next topic was looking at selective asthma. Uh, selective asthma, the researchers tried a few different models. And again, this is in mice. So uh, you, because mouse models are incredibly efficient because you can study a whole lot of things that you can't do it in humans. Uh, I mean, you can't chop a, a person's leg off and study it. <laughs> uh, even if they say they're okay with it, you still can't do it. Uh, so... We have mouse models, uh, which may sound gruesome, but unfortunately that it really progresses research quite a bit. So they tried in this particular mouse model of asthma, they tried three different conditions to figure out what would actually induce asthmatic condition, uh, an asthmatic episode. So they tried the flu, uh, they tried a hyperhygienic environment. So one where they had uh, cleaned things as much as they possibly could and also an exposure to the ozone or just different air pollutants. 
And what they found is that the, you know, it's actually funny before I, I touch on this. When I was reading the article from a journalist's standpoint, they misrepresented what the paper would actually said, uh, which, and it was pretty bad, actually. They said that it, it was, that the researchers found that the asthma was only induced with the exposure to ozone, but not exposed to the exposure to the flu or the hyper hygienic environment. And yet, when you look at the paper, that is definitely not what the researchers are saying. They are definitely saying that uh, it's an exposure to all three led to a some level of asthmatic event, which I'm about to describe. So, you know, don't, I, I hate to rag on journalists, I really do, but I mean, sometimes, especially when it comes to something like this, where you do need to have some sort of, you don't need to, but you should have some sort of education, if that's informal or formal, where to, to really understand what some of these papers are saying. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, you got to do your due diligence. You can't, uh, you can't just uh, write anything. So anyways, but going to the paper, all three of them led to some sort of reaction. What was that reaction? So they're just describing what happens in an asthma condition. And they actually ended up finding a treatment for that uh, in a mouse model. So certainly it's exciting because it could help kind of going forward, but uh, it's, it's still a mouse model and still early. So what'd they find? Well, I mentioned this in the last uh, section or the last topic uh, looking at uh, the innate immune system. And the innate in immune system includes uh, cells like neutrophils. So that's, that's the cell that in this situation infiltrates the lungs when we're exposed to like dust mites and uh, exposed to different allergens. Um, or different air pollutants. And these neutrophils will infiltrate into the lungs. And then for some reason, this is what they found out, is that they release DNA. So they release um, their deoxyribonucleic acid, uh, their genetic blueprint. And I don't know if they actually lyse themselves, as in they just kill themselves and release DNA, because that is a mechanism by which we can get immune recruitment. If cells are being killed, uh, the DNA that's found in the extracellular fluid and in the bloodstream is a clear sign for the rest of the immune system to freak out. And it sends mass amounts, just millions of cells into that region. It's just like, like you can almost think of it like a kingdom or something like, oh, you killed one of our knights? Okay, okay, all right. I see how it is, and then they just come in with hundreds of thousands of, of more knights to to deal with uh, with with the rebellion that's occurring. So, so I'm not sure if these neutrophils actually go through a process of apoptosis or necrosis, uh, where they release their DNA and die, uh, or if they literally just release their DNA, which is possible. Uh, I I don't. I don't know all the different mechanisms by which that happens, but you can you can package cells, I should say, our cells, um, can package things inside of vesicles known as exosomes uh, and can export those out of themselves and uh, share that with other cells. So one of the mechanisms is through this exosome release, and I'm not sure if that's exactly what's happening, because most likely that DNA would have to come in some sort of contact with uh, the, the outside 
uh, world, the actual bloodstream, and these exosomes are protective little layers. So they're they're inside uh, the the DNA would be inside. So I'm not sure exactly sure how that mechanism worked out, but somehow these neutrophils end up releasing DNA, and uh, that ends up, like I mentioned, that ends up recruiting many, many more immune cells. So, so you just to recap, uh, the air pollutants enter our lungs. They uh, get into our alveoli, which make up our lungs or the, the exchange of oxygen, CO2. And neutrophils are in that area. They, they sense it. Oh, crap, something's wrong. And then they start whatever mechanism they do that, they release DNA and then more immune cells uh, pick up that DNA and they're like, okay, we need, they start sending out tons of different signals to other immune cells and you have thousands and thousands of immune cells that enter that region, that region being the lungs. And that's why we get a lot of inflammation from uh, an asthma attack. So, uh, Interestingly, however, I did mention that there was a treatment that they had come up with or they, they had found, found some sort of system by which they could reverse some of this or actually reverse com it completely is that uh, they can inhibit the neutrophils and that leads to no reaction. So it seems to be neutrophil dependent, uh, neutrophil mediated. So if you can eliminate the neutrophils, not that you would want to, that's certainly not a solution because neutrophils aren't around as kind of just a, 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 an appendage that we could just get rid of. Uh, it's, it's, it's something that really matters. I mean, they, they serve a purpose beyond just freaking out over asthma and creating asthma. Uh, so that's not probably a long-term solution, but uh, maybe if the effects are relatively minor from at least reducing a, a neutrophil uh, reaction, then maybe that might be something that could be used going forward. So uh, like I mentioned, the neutrophils are necessary to induce this initial reaction, which then recruits the other immune cells, you know, with the release of the DNA. Uh, and the neutrophils specifically also recruit dendritic cells. So dendritic cells are uh, what are called antigen-presenting cells. Uh, or can be antigen presenting cells, as, as far as I remember. So they antigen being uh, some sort of foreign body, like uh, you know some sort of particle, a dust particle, whatever it might be, and you can then present that to other cells, and they will uh, take that up and kind of study it in a manner of speaking, and start creating those antibodies that I was talking about in the last section. So that's one way that neutrophils are able to to clear out dust mites. So you know, the inhibition of neutrophils might then be a potential target for uh, getting rid. And maybe maybe just in like extreme cases, if you're having an asthma attack specifically, maybe inhibiting the neutrophils for like six hours or something like that. Like then you might be in a position where you are uh, prone to infection. You may not want to be outside after you've taken this particular drug. Uh, but if they can keep it relatively short duration, if they could cut it down to like 30 minutes, if that's enough for the asthma attack to uh, subside, I mean, it would be pretty quick. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's, you'd have to talk to those researchers, but there's certainly some potential there. So that's pretty exciting. Okay, so moving on to skin pain or skin sensation. Uh, I mean, this was just kind of a cool thing that they've apparently just discovered. 
And they used a really cool technique, which I've spoken about, I think, once before called optogenetics, which is a really, really cool technique uh, that I'll explain in just a second. So it, everybody or almost everybody is familiar with like, and you can do this right now, you can just like touch your skin. You feel it. I mean, your finger feels it if you're using your finger to touch your skin. Uh, your finger feels it, but also the skin that you're touching feels it. I mean, both areas feel it so and if you press hard then there's a sensation of uh, pressure now that information is sensed by uh, nociceptive reception so that's really more specific to pain but that's that's what it's called these nociceptors uh, activate or yeah become activated when we have any sort of touch or pain or anything like that that's initiated. And what was initially thought was that you have ascending neurons, meaning that they move up the spine to the brain, and they have these open sensory nerve endings. So the the nerve endings just kind of stopped at the inside the skin somewhere. And then when you touch your skin, then they release this uh, signal all the way to the spinal cord, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it was also thought that these were unmyelinated neurons, and I believe I read somewhere that uh, there, and don't quote me on this, but I think that there's also myelinated. So the difference between the two is unmyelinated uh, sends a signal much slower than myelinated. And I imagine that if it's pain sensation, it's probably going to be myelinated as opposed to unmyelinated. But if it's maybe like pressure sensation or something relatively mild, maybe that's unmyelinated. I don't know. Uh, I would have to read into that some more. But what they've actually found is uh there are particular, well, let me back up for a second. Not only do we have neurons that go through our peripheral nervous system, so outside of our spinal cord and our brain, uh, we have all these different processes, all these different uh, tentacles, if you want to put it that way, which is actually pretty accurate. These tentacles that release and, and go all over our body to sense different things and to control all kinds of different things. I mean, all the way down to like our blood vessels are controlled a lot by our nervous system as well. So not only do we have these neurons and these axons that, that extend outwards all these different regions of our body, but the neurons are also supported by what are called glial cells. And glial cells in this specific situation in the, in the peripheral nervous system, so again, outside of our brain and our, and our uh, spinal cord, are called Schwann cells. Now, inside of our brain and our spinal cord, they're called oligodendrocytes, but we're focused on Schwann cells, and they're essentially support cells. So they uh, typically help regulate neurons, uh, nerve cells, by uh, metabolism, and they also protect the axons of the neurons because the neuronal axons can extend a really far distance. Uh, because I mean, if you have to innervate something in your foot, well, that's that's gonna that's gonna be quite some distance that it has to travel. So um, things like that. So that's typically what Schwann cells do. But what they found, what these researchers have found, is that uh, these th there are no susceptive. So again, that's related to pain. No susceptive Schwann cells that are found in the skin, 
And they are the ones, or at least one of the mechanisms that they've just discovered, aside, not, not saying that the previous mechanism of uh, unmyelinated neurons don't have a role, they certainly do, but specifically for uh, actual sensation or pain sensation, the, there are these nociceptive Schwann cells that are found in a layer of our skin, and they sense the actual pain sensation. And the way they were able to figure this out is by this technique that I was talking about. So uh, they, they figured out a way, I'm not going to go into all the details of how they did this, but um, they figured out a way to specifically express a, or activate, that's, that's a better way to put it, to specifically activate these nociceptive Schwann cells, no other cells, just the nociceptive Schwann cells by light. That's called optogenetics. So you literally just shine a light on these cells and they will activate. Now what they did in, sorry about the animal lovers out there, I'm an animal lover too, although you can call me a hypocrite by the fact that uh, science unfortunately has to use animals for some of this stuff. But then they measured the uh, pain uh, response that mice had when they activated these uh, nociceptive Schwann cells and they found that the mice would retract their paw very quickly, it was an immediate, like very distinct reaction. And it happened every single time that they activated these nociceptive Schwann cells uh, using light. And it's a really, really cool technique, using light to manipulate um, the activity of particular cells. It's, a, it's an advanced technique, it's really, really cool. I've never done it myself, but I have seen it done. And uh, it's, a, it's a really cool technology that I'm sure will be uh, moving forward. If you, if you ever check out the videos, they're a little freaky, to be completely honest, because you can have an animal or like a worm or something, and it's just moving around normally. And then you can shine this light on it, and suddenly it just freezes, or it spazzes out, or it just does whatever you want it to do. It's like, it's, it's mesmerizing, but it's also kind of freaky. Anyway, so that's a new mechanism by which we figured out kind of skin pain sensation. Now, the last like actual topic topic that I want to discuss is slowing aging and aging types. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about this high protein a bit just, just for a minute. So researchers took a variety of measurements from 106 participants of both sexes uh, between the ages of 29 and 75 over a two to three year period, kind of dependent on uh, when participants were available. And then they took a blood stool and biological samples. So they took, you know, uh, skin samples, they took stool samples, they took pee, they took blood, they took all that stuff. And then they just screened it for a series of different, like a ton of different markers. And they determined that people typically belong in four biological pathway categories. Those four categories, and you can, you can determine, uh, these are called ageotypes. So you can fall under a particular ageotype uh, if you fall under one of these four biological pathways. Uh, they follow metabolic, immune, hepatic, or liver, and nephrotic, which is our kidneys. And they found that these different molecules correspond to each one of these four pathways for the most part. I think they, they mentioned that there are still some that are they're outside of all four of those, but typically 
the majority fall under these four different agotypes. And you can cross-pollinate. So you can have a person who has a bad metabolic profile and may also have a bad hepatic profile and or you know, less than desirable, I should say, aging profile for metabolism as well as for liver, but may have a decent one for kidneys, may have a decent one for immune system, like something along those lines. Or you can just be limited to one. So Essentially, what they do is they figure out, well, what's kind of the average? What's kind of the, the you know, across for a particular age, what is about the average uh, level that a person has this molecule expressed? And then they're able to compare individuals to that average and find out if a person is kind of aging more quickly or they're aging more slowly than the average. And for most people, of course, they're going to fall within that average, but, you know, plus or minus a certain amount. Now, what they found was really cool is that not everyone aged the same. Some people, of course, aged faster. I don't think that's too much of a surprise. But some people over that two to three year period actually got younger. <laughs> How cool is that? That they, they measured this, like a, this particular set of molecules and they found that these individuals got younger. Now, the researchers did note that does not mean that they don't age. They do, they absolutely do. It's just that within that two to three year snapshot period, they got younger and some of that was because of uh, lifestyle changes. So what's strategic about just using two to three years to measure this is that one, you get a pretty decent uh, information window, but it's also a period where you can actually make changes and see if some of those changes have an effect. Actually, one of the researchers also mentioned that uh, he had just started lifting weight, so he was curious how that was going to uh, eventually impact his his agotype, if it was going to be some somehow beneficial to his agotype. So I thought that was kind of funny. Um, yeah, so some of the lifestyle changes that some of these individuals experienced or what they ended up implementing was some of them just lost weight. Uh, and some of them just got on statins if they had like high, high uh, cholesterol. And that was apparently beneficial for their age type. Now, again, that doesn't mean that these people are not aging. They certainly are. It's just that they are, um, they were, you know, not doing everything that they could be doing for their health. And therefore they were kind of, let's say, slightly above average in terms of, their aging process, and then they started implementing better habits, and suddenly those molecules started falling or started changing for the better. Some of them might have increased, some of them might have decreased, you know, whatever it was. And that ended up leading to these individuals seeming like they were getting younger. But that's not that's not completely accurate. They will, you know, in 20 years, they're not going to be as young as they were, you know, let's say at 20 years old, they're not getting, or at 40 years old, they're not going to be the same age uh, in these molecular ways as they were at 20 years old. Uh, it's not to say anything like that, but uh, there is a lot of flexibility. And I've talked about physiological aging before on a previous podcast before, which I think is a really cool concept, that your lifestyle can have a dramatic, dramatic impact on your aging and your health in general um, to the point where people can have a body that's much younger than the average. So the average, of course, being, well, kind of taking into consideration the entire population or a, a large subset, I should say, of the population, some sample size and getting some sort of number. And then and then depending on your habits, let's say you exercise a lot, let's say you eat you know, good nutrition, you get enough sleep, you do all these different things, suddenly your physiological age may be 5, 10. And they even said in some instances, people can be as 
much as 15 years younger than their chronological age. But that was in the physiological study that was on this uh, these particular molecular markers. But I thought this this feeds you know right in line with that, and I thought it was really interesting. So. Yeah, that's where I want to leave it. I mean, with with the lifestyle stuff, you know, if if you wanted to change your lifestyle, that's going to be beneficial for your health. And finally, I wanted to just briefly discuss this paper that I uh, released some content on looking at high protein, a quote unquote high protein versus quote unquote normal protein levels and their effect on kidney health, liver health and cholesterol. And I don't know, a bunch of other factors like blood sugar levels and things like that. Uh, Billy Rubin, I think, was another one, uh, which is red blood cell count, or related to red blood cells, I should say. And they wanted to compare, you know, general health. How is general health affected by consuming a high protein? That's again, quote unquote, because the high protein condition was 3.3 grams per kilogram of weight. So um, I weigh about, you know, 220. Uh, 220 pounds, sorry, that's 100 kilograms. So I would be consuming 330 grams of protein in this situation. That is a lot of protein. So yes, is that a high protein condition? Absolutely. But the problem was that their no normal protein condition was 2.6 grams per kilogram. So that would be 260 grams of protein for me. That's still a tremendous amount of protein. That is a massive amount of protein. And while the group's consumed both levels of protein for eight weeks each, uh, they found that there were no differences. Now, one of the critiques, that one of the comments uh, on this paper by uh, some of you guys was that, well, yeah, but those those two are so similar that they're both high protein. I completely agree. As a matter of fact, even their pre-study condition, how much protein these people were consuming before the study began was two point around roughly about 2.3 grams per kilogram. That's 230 grams of protein. That's insane. I mean, for me, that's insane. That's a ton of protein. I don't even consume that much when I'm trying to cut weight, when I'm trying to uh, lose body fat. So that's that's a tremendous amount of protein. I completely understand and I completely agree that that was not enough. That was not a wide enough gap between uh, the two conditions. However, the argument is, however, my counter argument to that is it doesn't matter because you can st- we know what the average is based off of other studies of what would be normal cholesterol, what would be normal liver health, what would be normal kidney health, all those different markers. So it doesn't, as a matter of fact, it might even be beneficial, although I still wish that they had created a, a bigger discrepancy because that means that these individuals have been consuming a high protein diet for at least 16 weeks, but most likely even longer than that. So they've been consuming protein for months and months and months and most likely years, and their kidney function, their liver function, their cholesterol, everything was perfectly fine. It was in in good ranges for everything. So the study may have screwed up, but the result is still highly indicative because even if we don't stratify based on the different conditions, the different protein conditions, it still tells us that a high protein diet is still perfectly okay for kidney health, liver health, you know, all these different health markers in, I think this was in younger, uh, maybe male, maybe, I think maybe it was both sexes, but uh, definitely in uh, healthy individuals. This does not apply for a person who has 
uh, kidney problems, if they have renal issues, uh, that would this study would not apply. You would need to find a study that looks specifically at uh, nephrology and uh, figures out if high protein consumption would be somehow detrimental. Okay, so hopefully I addressed all the different concerns there, and but I, I you know I thought it was it was kind of nice, and I really appreciated the fact that um, uh, somebody stepped forward and you know just like hey maybe uh, this this doesn't this isn't that indicative which I still think it is, but um, it's nice to see people kind of engage and, and uh, get some feedback on, on uh, so, some of the things that I'm releasing. Anyways, hopefully you found this really helpful uh, or at least interesting, uh, at least fascinating in some regard. I certainly find it incredibly fascinating. And with that said, I wish you a wonderful, wonderful day. And I hope I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with you in the next one. Have a good one, guys. See ya.